Amen, amen. We're releasing kindergarten and first to Miss Robin in the back. Kindergarten and first graders, Miss Robin's waiting in the back for you. You can be released to her. While the, uh, the rest of this contemplative crowd can, uh, let's, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be today. And um, church, we've got a lot to celebrate, do we not? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I think some people still think we're at a funeral and we're not. You always have that one crazy relative that even cheers like that at a funeral, you know, I don't. <clears throat> at Easter, we celebrate the death and resurrection and eventual return of King Jesus. This resurrection is not just a set of beliefs or a philosophical approach to life. It's not just some kind of religion. What we celebrate today, Christianity is founded upon this actual thing, was an actual event. And this is not my rebuttal to the history. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, there's nothing mechanical, deterministic about the Christian message. It centers on this very thing, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Read, read Love and Power. But in this humanity, Jesus still pleads for this trial to be removed. See, crucifixion was one of the worst tortures ever imagined. Dying on a cross would be far worse for the Son of God than any ordinary human and Jesus, if you can identify with his humanity, knows that this is the course that has been laid out before the foundation of the world. And he knows that this, drinking this bitter cup is very close. And so in his humanity, this is what he prays. Father, if you're willing, would you remove this cup? This bitter cup Jesus was speaking about there in verse 42 was certainly the cross. Now, the cross to us is jewelry. It's funny, though. You look back, there was, there was no such thing as cross jewelry up until about 400 years after Christ. And that was after they got rid of crucifixion because it, it was the mode of execution. And it was scary. And it lasted in your mind. A few things just quickly about the crucifixion. We talked about this on Friday night. But I want us to see what Jesus was walking through and what he was actually praying about. Crucifixion was public. Not like the posters they used to sell at Lifeway. I used to work at Lifeway. Had these beautiful pictures of these crosses on this like hill far, far away in this distance. No, the Romans ruled 60% of the land in their day. And the way that they enforced their rules, they didn't have enough soldiers or leaders to occupy that much land. And so they did it through fear. And if you ever crossed Rome, this is how they would kill you. And they would do it in a way that was very public. Not in a hill, on a hill far, far away. It was like at the intersection right up here of, uh, at the, where the Circle K is at. And not back where the actual Circle K is at, like on the side of the road. They would normally do it about 10 to 12 steps off the main path. And they would do it just about a foot or two above eye level. So you didn't have to go far. They did it that way to scare you so you could hear those being crucified. You could hear what they were saying. You could hear the blood gurgle in the back of their throat that you could smell what was going on they did that on purpose crucifixion was public crucifixion was planned crucifixion did not take God by surprise it's not like God fell asleep at the wheel 
You ever do this? You're driving somewhere and you're tired and you finally get to where you're going and you forget the last hour of your trip and you're like, how in the world did I just make that trip? Because I remember nothing, right? That's not what happened to God. He did not get abruptly opened by the rumble strips on the side of the interstate and be like, oh, what's happening? They got Jesus now. No, that's not what happened. This was planned. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his son Isaiah 53 says that, it was, that God was pleased to crush his son, written 700 years before it actually happened. Ephesians 2, Paul says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, before, before the beginning of time. Crucifixion was planned. This bitter cup was planned. Crucifixion was, man, it was awful. It was so painful. It was the most painful way to die. It was invented by the Assyrians. It was used regularly by the Persians in the 6th century. Alexander the Great was the one who actually brought it to the Mediterraneans. The Phoenicians introduced it to Rome. And Rome spent 500 years perfecting it. Again, artists do us a disservice on this. They, They make Jesus look like he was Swedish and had great abs. Like it's... Thor hanging up there on the cross, you know? That's not what crucifixion was. The Bible tells us that Jesus was flogged. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails. He was tortured beforehand. A lot of people didn't survive that. And if they did survive it, they had their organs mostly exposed. They were missing an eye. They had parts of their rib yanked out of them. Many died from blood loss, but most died from asphyxiation. It would take them normally two to three days to die this way, hanging on a cross, yelling to every passerby. See how public and painful it was. The English word that we have, excruciation, came up from this very purpose. They made it to describe what it was to hang on a cross. But you know what? It was also... Our payment. See, people were crucified as a means of punishment for wrongdoing. Rome killed a thousand people a year by crucifixion. But Jesus had done nothing wrong. This is why Pilate in his hearing literally washed his hands in front of the people and says, this blood is not on me. But Pilate, you don't get out that easy. See, Jesus didn't die for his sins. He was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He died for your sins and my sins. This is why Paul says in second letter to the church at Corinth, God made him who had no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cross was payment for our sins. This is indeed a bitter cup. And Jesus admonishes his followers in this moment, looking to this bitter cup that he's about to walk through. It says that he, <clears throat> he tells them to pray that they don't fall into temptation. The word translated temptation is the same one that Jesus had recently used in the Lord's Prayer where we ask, Lord, lead us not into temptation. What was the temptation for them? The temptation was to fear. The temptation was to hide. The temptation was to doubt. Temptation even for Peter was to fight. 
So Jesus is praying the prayer of his life, literally sweating drops of blood, and he's got this ragtag group of disciples. If there was ever a group of disciples that you would not want to leave the greatest message in the history of the world to, it was these disciples. Don't, don't, think, don't think SEAL team, right? Think Billy Bob with a pitchfork. That's what you think. That's what they, these, were just, these were just redneck disciples. Most of them just learned to trade. If your name's Billy Bob, I apologize. It's no. After his prayer, he comes back and he finds them. It says in verse 45, sleeping for sorrow. Matthew's version says he didn't just come and wake him up once. He came three times and said, hey, wake up. This is important. Would you please pray with me? Would you please pray with me? Would you please pray? Pleading with them to pray. But they couldn't get through. They knew the moment was so tense and so sorrowful, all they could do is sleep. You ever been through a moment so difficult? You ever ached for someone so deeply that the only rest you could get was to sleep? Scripture makes it clear that only Jesus would stay awake this entire time and only his faithfulness could actually save the disciples The text describes Jesus' own prayer as one of agony. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. I've never seen this in this passage, and I've preached this passage many times, that an actual angel of heaven appeared strengthening him. Only Matthew mentions that. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, verse 44, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is Jesus' unanswered prayer. Now on this side, especially on a day like today, we know why the perfect Father in heaven didn't grant this request of his beloved Son. But our lives don't always work that way. We don't always see on the other sides. Sometimes we see an answer in hindsight, like why God didn't answer my prayer to marry Joanne Freeman in seventh grade. He didn't answer that prayer. I'm glad he didn't. Or... The little boy she cheated on me with, I, I prayed that he would not wake up from sleep. You know, I, I would say his name, but it's a cuss word now in my life. No, I literally don't remember his name. I don't know who his name was. Sometimes we know why God doesn't answer prayer because of hindsight. We see this great cosmic supernatural orchestrator of all things. We see him working and we can see little glimpses of it and we can think, that's what he was doing. In the depths of it, I didn't see, and I felt, like he was, I felt like he wasn't with me, and I felt like he was so distant, but that's what he was doing. I get it. But a lot of times we don't know. We tried it. We went out on a limb. We put our hope in God, and then he didn't answer like we thought he should, and it can feel like free-falling into the abyss. How do we guard our hearts? How do we guard our faith? I think Scripture can help us with that. That we would not give way to defeat or despair. First, be very careful how you interpret what we call an unanswered prayer. Our hearts are so vulnerable in these moments. It's just so easy to lose heart. Assumptions come rushing in that God isn't listening or God isn't close or God doesn't care or I'm not faithful enough or I don't have enough faith or prayer doesn't really work or what is this we're even believing in anyway? Let me give you a few possible reasons why God might not be answering your prayer. One, that you're not in the family. I hate to
promises that God extends about asking and seeking and knocking that we've been talking about for several weeks apply only to those who are walking in fellowship with him, that they're in the family. We were talking with the beverages a couple days ago. We go on vacation with the beverages and McKenzie sometimes and we go to the beach. And several years ago, we had two different houses next door to each other and about six o'clock in the morning, Deacon, who's probably four at the time, comes busting into our bedroom and says, Miss Ashley, what's for breakfast? And if Deacon wasn't, you know Deacon, he's just got the sweetest voice in the world. You don't, you don't waken Ashley like that. She's, we call it the nocturnal demon. And um, it's gotten better, but I had to, I, I jumped up and handled Deacon in fear that the wrath um, would overcome. It's like, Deacon, we don't do breakfast here, bro. Go back to your home. Go back to your home. Nowhere in scripture does God promise that he hears the prayers of unbelievers. So take this a step further. He says in Psalms that if we regard sin in our hearts, it blocks our fellowship with God, that he doesn't hear our prayers because of the sin in our lives. Of course, God sometimes does hear unbelievers' prayers because he's compassionate and gracious, but he hasn't promised to the way that he's promised to those who are in the family to ask to seek, to knock was a promise for those in the family of God. You say, well, pastor, that feels exclusive. Well, it is a bit exclusive, but listen to this. The thing that God wants more than anything else is to you to join the family. There is an open invitation. He gave his very life to make you his child. And he invites you to become that child, part of the family, whenever you're willing to receive him. Surrender your control of your life to him. Trust him to be your savior. I pray some of you do that today, that you become part of the family of God, not playing religion, but this relationship with a father who loves you. Maybe secondly, it's something in you that might need to change. Scripture says that sometimes God doesn't grant our request because we ask with the wrong motives. You know, we ask for the Lamborghini, not to glorify God, but so we can impress other people, right? James 4 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own sinful passions. A lot of times God withholding what you're asking for is the most amazing thing he can do. In the passage, the illustration Jesus says, who would when ask for an egg, what good father when asked for an egg by his child would give him a scorpion? But what if the child asked for a scorpion? This is what God the Father, the loving, perfect Father does. He doesn't give you the scorpion that you ask for, right? Because he's loving. That's, that's how he works. Sometimes God uses the delay to, in answering to work in you. Maybe someone's hurt you and you want to hurt them back. Maybe you aren't praying for them to die, but you just want them to get bed bugs or like have a flat every day for the rest of their life. Of course, that sounds flippant, but... If you've really been hurt, it's hard not to want to hurt others back. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that we're going to pray and bless those who persecute us. Unanswered prayer can be how he purifies us, how he transforms our heart to be like his heart. Paul Tripp says this, in grace, he leads you where you didn't plan to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. In these moments, he works to alter the values of your heart so that you let go of your little kingdom of one and give yourself to his kingdom. 
There's just something about walking through difficulty that brings the mess in our lives to the very top. And so sometimes God says, wait. Some of you might remember the biblical character, Joseph. Way back in the Old Testament, Joseph had God's favor on him from the very beginning. He was his dad's favorite kid. He did everything right. And he began to get a little cocky and arrogant because of his blessing, because of his talent. His brothers despised him, so they devised a plan to kill him. And then at the last minute, they decided not to kill him. Let's not kill him if we can actually make money on him. So they sold him as a slave. Well, he ends up in Egypt. God's favor still on him. He keeps rising to the top of every situation he's put in. Again, he's done nothing wrong, but yet the wrong things keep happening to him. In a moment of integrity and faithfulness, he gets accused of, he gets falsely accused and put in prison. And he's in prison for almost two decades. Can you imagine being falsely accused and in prison? You did the right thing. Can you imagine how the conversation would go with God? God, I was doing the right thing. I was standing up for you. And all I get is this messy prison. Then he thought he might get out. Someone else got out. And he said, hey, when you get up there, tell them that, you know, I've got this little talent of interpreting dreams. And he forgot. So many reasons to lose hope, yet in the end, God's plan was greater. God's plan was better. He gets out after these decades in prison. He's appointed to over the second in charge. He could not have possibly gotten there if he had never went to prison and worked faithfully those 17 years. He could have never gotten this position. But because God put him in a place and said, I want you to wait. And just because you're waiting, don't think that I'm not working. I'm orchestrating, Romans would said, everything together for those that... For good, I'm working, the, I'm, I'm working these things together. For those that love him are called according to his purpose. And that's what's happening. God was working while Joseph waited. Friends, Mark Batterson says it this way. I love this. Don't put a period where God has put a comma. He calls this the Jejit principle. It sounds like some jujitsu move to me, but Jejit, just enough just in time. You see this all over the Bible where God answers prayers just in time. It happened with Israel at the Red Sea, Daniel in the lion's den, the three Israelites in the fiery furnace, the widow in her last jar of oil, the disciples on the boat before it's going to capsize. God wants to see if we're going to chicken out or if we're going to pray our way through it. His actual quote, sometimes we perceive as a divine period, what is actually just a comma. We think God's silent is the end of the sentence, but it's really just a providential pause. Never put a period where God only puts a comma. Don't we see this on Resurrection Sunday in the passage that Jason read? This is an incredible passage. I I love this passage. Because Jesus had been telling them time and time and time again, just a couple days before, he made it very clear. Hey, son of man is going to die, but he's going to rise again. As clear as it could be. And then he actually dies, and they lost all hope. All hope. It said the ladies go, not the next day, that was the Sabbath, but the next day on Sunday morning that they go with the spices, they're going to, you know, prepare the body. And they're going to go prepare the body because the dudes had did it first. And if you've ever, if your wife's ever asked you to clean the kitchen, you clean the kitchen and your wife comes in and really clean, cleans the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? 
and you know, that does the real job. And so that's what the, the ladies are doing. They're going to go all the way. They're going to go and they're going to do what's right, what the, what, the, what, what the other disciples did not do what's right. And they get there and he's not there. And they run back and they tell the disciples, like, hey, someone's stolen the Lord. And the disciples run. And in John's account, which is what Jason read, I love it. John tells us four times that he's faster than Peter. I just love that. Not just once. Hey, I want you to tell you this whole resurrection thing is real and it's going to change your life forever. Also notice that I'm faster than Peter. And I'm faster than him four times, right? Peter might be bold. He might be the dude. But I can run. That's what he wants us to know. It's amazing. Read it later today. It really makes me giggle when I, when I read it. They thought that it was a period when it was just a comma. They just would have waited. The angels are even like, hey, uh, what are y'all doing? Why, why are y'all so sad? The angels, I think, literally thought that all the disciples would be there right there looking at the clock, looking at the sun about to rise, thinking, man, this is about to be awesome, right? Move that bus, stone thing, move it. And they're cheering it's going to happen, and they're not even there because they put a period where God put a comma. How many times do we do that? Do we lose faith? We give up on God because he didn't act when we wanted him to act. Friends, God wants to do a greater work in you. And sometimes delayed answers to prayers are, are that answer, that he wants to do a greater work. Remember, Christ's likeness, not just deliverance is the goal. That's the first goal in our prayer too. And unanswered prayer is how we get there sometimes. Sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says, no. Remember the apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians? He's praying for this thorn in the flesh to be removed. It says in, in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said, no, Paul, I'm not gonna answer that prayer. I'm doing another thing. You want immediate relief. I'm conforming you into the image of my son. I read that and I think about like the movies, the, the workout montage, you know, when, when the boxer loses the first round or he almost loses and he's a bit embarrassed and it only motivates them to go work harder and train in the snow so that one day they'll have ultimate victory. This is what God's doing in our souls. Sometimes delayed answers or even answers of no when we're asking for a yes is God saying, I'm working out a bigger and better story. This is what happened. We see directly with Jesus. Jesus here is praying, literally praying that the bitter cup would be poured out a different way. And at the climax of this pain, he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The cross meant shame and the abandonment of the father. The moment was literally like walking through hell. So it's no wonder that he's asking for another way. And again, on this side, we know the father didn't answer Jesus' prayer for deliverance because he had a greater plan. On this side of the event, we know why he wouldn't. And surely Jesus knew at the time, although it didn't make this prayer any less real, our salvation was at stake. Only this kind of love, one that could give up the most precious thing, his only son, could drive him to refuse and answer to him. Of course, after the death, the father raised him from the dead and made him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So the prayer was not answered as it was formulated, but a greater, better answer was given. 
deliverance, one that brought him up from the dead and his people along with him. Now we rush past this again because of what's some called outcome bias. We know how the story ends. So we rush through this part of Jesus praying. But again, what if we stop the story right there after the cross? You see the disciples again just in despair. Thomas, one of the disciples, missed it again. Thomas was the pessimist. He was always pessimistic about everything. He's, we call him Thomas the doubter, but he was just pessimistic. When they were going to Bethany after Lazarus had died, Thomas is the one who's like, well, let's go and die too, I guess, you know. <laughs> this is who Thomas was. And Jesus shows up to the, to, the, to the ladies, and then he shows up to the disciples, and I don't know what... Thomas was at home adjusting his investments or whatever he was doing, but he missed it. And so now all the disciples and the ladies, they come to Thomas. Thomas, you would never believe what just happened. He was like, not again. Mm -mm. I ain't believing it. I, no way. Unless I put my finger in his side and in his wounds. Jesus shows up just a little while later and lets him do just that. Thomas thought the bell had rung and the chapter was closed. These disciples are meeting in locked doors, are scared to death, and Jesus shows up and so tenderly answers their doubts. You know what this tells me? You don't have to fully understand to fully believe. Sometimes we don't understand it all. We get reports, little kids are shot down and the cancer comes back and we don't understand it and I just like you go to God with prayer God how in the world could such a thing happen and I have to resign that Lord I don't know but I trust you you don't have to fully understand to fully believe the last reason that God might not be answering your prayers because he's delaying the answer until his return. One of my favorite scenes is actually in the book of Revelation where God talks about these big bowls full of prayers of the saints that God uses to bring in the final days. Many of these prayers that we prayed for relief and healing will eventually be answered, but answered in eternity. On that final day, when Revelation 21 says God will wipe away every tear, we will be ultimately delivered from broken bodies and broken desires and broken relationships. Prayers for marriage and healing and reconciliation will all be answered then. I got this quote. I love this. The resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Isn't that a great quote? that death doesn't have the last word and sin doesn't have the last word and cancer doesn't have the last word and school shootings don't have the last word and AIDS doesn't have the last word and injustice doesn't have the last word and, and broken relationships don't have the last word and violence doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word, friends. Those are several reasons why God might not be answering your prayer, but I want to return to the, our passage one more time. Because it shows us one thing we should never assume when our prayer is not being answered like we hoped. Oftentimes people assume when God delays that he's abandoned them, but not Jesus. He knows the nature of God, the love of the Father. He's convinced he's been with the Father from the very beginning. Jesus' prayer is perfect because the next phrase. 
Lord, if you're willing to deliver me from this bitter cup. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the prayer of surrender. Because of this prayer and God's way of answering it, our own prayers are assured of the best possible answers. Of a God who loves you perfectly and has the power to change anything. Jesus here prays for himself, but his earthly life's purpose was to ensure our salvation. Indeed, he prayed for us and continues to do so. His prayer just the night before, his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays that the Father would give him his people for salvation. And now that he's in heaven, seated at the right hand, he continues to intercede for us. God answered that very prayer. And because of that, our own prayers, although they're not perfect by any means, are perfected by the Spirit, Romans 8, who prays for us, who helps us in our weakness. Jesus was the mediator who would rather die than let us perish. And that shows me that when I feel alone, when I feel abandoned in prayer, it's not because he's actually abandoned me. He gave his life so that I would never be abandoned. This is how we live with resurrection hope on Monday and every other day the rest of our lives. And friends, because of that, I know that God hears me when I pray and that I can leave my request at his feet and I can ask big things of him. It's not wrong. It's actually encouraged that we ask God to supernaturally break through. And sometimes he does. There's this, see, Jesus was teaching his disciples this all the time. They just didn't get it until these days. And some of them went on to write parts of scripture and we understand they finally got it. Oh, this is what Jesus was doing the whole time. In Matthew 8, Jesus is asleep on the bottom of the boat. The disciples are trying to row across the lake in a hurricane. Not very favorable for them. These are experienced fishermen. They think they're literally going to die. Someone says, where's Jesus at? He's not bucketing like he needs to be bucketing. We're about to go down. Let's at least go find him. They go down and he's asleep on the bottom of the boat. They wake Jesus in 20, verse 26, <laughs> Matthew 8. He says to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. I don't know if that's like a sarcastic he calls them that a lot. It literally means little faith people. Why are you afraid, little faith people? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? Jesus shushes the storm. And sometimes that's how God works. I've seen him work that way in my life. I've prayed for a miracle and I've seen a miracle. Often it wasn't in my own timing. It wasn't the way that I thought it would happen, but he did it. This is why it says you should ask the heavenly father. You should ask. Sometimes he speaks to the storm. But sometimes he doesn't speak to the storm. Sometimes he speaks to the person in the storm. Just a few chapters later, another lesson that God's trying to teach Peter in Matthew 14, they're on the lake. There's another storm. They've seen this before. This time, Jesus is not in the boat with them. It's important when you know Jesus, take him with you. The disciples, it said, have been rowing all night, but the wind was against them. 
they saw what they thought was a ghost and it happened to be Jesus skipping across the lake. Well, he wasn't skipping, that's my interpretation. I do think that he passed them rather nonchalantly though. I think it was like, uh, they are just like rowing their brains out and he's just like, what's up guys? Such an awesome scene. And then Peter's like, Jesus, if it's you, can I come? I love this, faith like a child, jumps out of the boat. He'd never walked on water before. It's not like he took water training classes in seminary. He'd never walked on water before. Every time else he got in water, he sank. He jumps out of the boat, he walks over to Jesus. It's this really cool picture. Verse 30 of Matthew 14, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink. Also, just a great mental picture. How do you begin to sink? You either sink or you don't sink. And this is like, it's like gel he's on. He's slowly sinking. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, this is the phrase, you little faith man, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt Sometimes Jesus speaks to the storm and it calms. Jesus never calmed this storm. No, instead he spoke to the person in the storm. He speaks to Peter. But whoever or whatever Jesus speaks to, that thing is calmed. Here's the bottom line, I'm gonna be done. Friends, you can trust whatever God is doing. He is pursuing a good plan in you. Romans 8 says, and we know that for those who love God and work, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Not that all things are good things. The cross was not a good thing. Yet Jesus embraced it for you and for me. God used it for our good. Friends, do you see what freedom there is here in just learning to trust Jesus? Maybe some of you are walking through one of those difficulties right now and you don't know what God's doing. It's hard to see where he's at work. It's hard to make sense in your brain. Where you can't see his plan, just grab his hand. He knows where he's going. I got this little picture of me and me and my HUD man. This is five years ago about where Disney World's the happiest place on earth, getting rained on. It's amazing while spending thousands of dollars a day. It is amazing. <clears throat> you should go for sure. Hudson, maybe he's five or six years old and uh, super crowded, I guess it always is. It's just, I'm taking every step. It's like, why are we paying for this? Why are we paying for this? This is, I love to go stand in the rain for three hours to see Nemo. It's great. See animated fish. Um, Oftentimes, you know, Hud was kind of getting his independence and he didn't want to hold dad's hand. And so he wouldn't, he would walk by himself and I'd walk right with him. And the girls were all riding the big kid rides, me and Hud. We're doing our thing. 
we'd come into a group of a lot of people and it'd be really dense and he'd get a little scared and he would just reach that hand up there. I mean, he wasn't scared. He's in here. He wasn't scared. He would reach that hand up there and he would grab my hand and he would hold it tighter and tighter. Because from his purview, he couldn't see where we were going, what was happening. He didn't know. But he was convinced that dad knew. Dad didn't really know where I was going. I was just like, let's just walk fast and confidently. We'll get there. (laughs) Friends, God knows. Some of the darkest things you'll ever walk through are not things that he created, but things that sin brought. And when you don't see his plan, just grab his hand. You can go to a good father in heaven that loves you. Let's finish how we started on this resurrection day. I want, us, I want this thought to be in your mind as you leave. That the resurrection reminds us of the love of God and the power of God. Jesus said of himself, greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And he did that. Friends, the love of God is great and real. Paul says, how wide is it? How deep is it? How tall? I mean, the love of God is just unbelievable. Sacrificial love is inspiring and rare. But there's been people before that have given their life for other people. It's still such a great quality. But if Jesus just died on the cross in our place, but never rose from the dead, he would just be a loving teacher. But on this resurrection day, we celebrate that he wasn't just loving, that he was so powerful that he conquered sin and death in the grave. That's why Paul says the little song that he would break out into all the time, oh, death, where's your sting? Doesn't mean it didn't hurt. It just meant it didn't, it didn't, it didn't have venom in it. Jesus removed the venom. God is loving and powerful. I invite the band back up. I want this to be on your minds and I want to pray over you. We need his help today. And so we're here to ask for help the best way we know how. And the rest is up to him. And I'm speaking to a couple groups in this room and I just want you to get alone with God. If you would just center your mind and heart with him. Maybe you felt so betrayed by him. This is the first time you've tempted to talk to him in a long time, but I encourage you to do it. Just reach up there and grab his hand. Just ask him to speak to you that this resurrection day, this Easter day, wouldn't be defined with eggs and bunnies and our nice church clothes but that you encountered the God of the universe who's so powerful that he opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence, including you. But he's also so tender and so close that he knows the number of hairs on your heads and he's invited you to come to him to be part of his family. Only one thing would have prevented that and that was your sin. And Jesus says, you know what? Let me cover that too. Some of you have come today, you're not part of God's family, and my, man, my prayer today is you'd step across the line of faith today. Just right there in your seat, just do business with God. God, I love you. I thank you for the people in this room.
Lord, I'll acknowledge some of them are praying some, praying some really big prayers. Prayers for healing. Some of them are walking through kid pain. They're, they're praying for their kids. Kids who've wandered away from the faith, kids who have mountains of doubt, kids who are actually sick and hurting, confused or depressed. They're praying on behalf of their kids. God, would you do a miracle? Would you speak to the storm? That we would see the storm stop? And God, if that's not your will, would you, would you speak to them in the storm? That they would know that you've not abandoned them, that you're with them. You're working all this together for their good. I pray this resurrection day that we see you afresh today, Jesus. High and lifted up at the right hand of the Father. And we worship you for who you are. God, do in our hearts what needs to be done. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me give you a few moments to pray just right where you're at. You can write that prayer request on a card. Our prayer team's in the back. Maybe you just need to go grab one of them. You don't even have to know them. Just grab their hand and they got a little lanyards on so you don't grab a stranger's hand. But they'd pray for you too. Maybe you just need to go grab their hand and say, would you pray with me? You don't even have to tell them what it's about. Just let them pray over you. Maybe something specific you want to ask them to pray for. Talk to the Father. I'll be glad to pray with you. I'll be in the back as well. Do what God puts on your heart. Then we'll sing and celebrate.